This is Jim Morris, author of Bad Advertising, an expose of insipid, insufferable, ineffective advertising. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, and thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in or you'd like to learn more about, send me a connection invite on LinkedIn where we can chat and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. But, and this is important, make sure to include a message with your connection invite telling me that you're a Marketing Book Podcast listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer. This episode is sponsored by Ahrefs Webmaster Tools. What if I told you that you could monitor your website's SEO health, backlinks, and organic rankings at no cost? You can with Ahrefs Webmaster Tools. It's a new, very advanced, and easy-to-use free SEO tool that will scan your site and prioritize precisely what you need to fix to improve your search results. And it's so easy to use... Even a podcast host can use it. Check it out at ahrefs.com slash A-W-T. That's A-H-R-E-F-S dot com slash A-W-T. I'll tell you more about it in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Jim Morris to talk about his new book, Badvertising, an expose of insipid, insufferable, ineffective advertising published by Career Press. Jim Morris is a Chicago-based, award-winning advertising copywriter and strategist who has been creating memorable ad campaigns for more than 40 years, including stints at Footcone Belding and Doyle Dane Bernbach Worldwide. And of course, I have to use those names because I'm a recovering ad guy. Those are FCB and DDB Worldwide. He's also served on the faculty of Columbia College as a copywriting instructor where he tried to discourage students from going into advertising. And he has been a contributor for publications including Ad Week and Brand Week. And interesting fact, after college, he was a rock and roll musician for 10 years before going into advertising and his father was the managing editor of Advertising Age magazine. Jim, congratulations on Badvertising, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you very much, Doug. Great to be here. And you're also, uh, based on my careful reading of your book, you're a White Sox fan. And if I read it correctly, you hate the Cubs. Is that correct? <laughs> I, I'm a White Sox fan. That's all that needs to be said, really. Oh, okay. Okay. And you are also known in the biz as Tagline Jim. And one of your famous taglines was for Flintstones Kids Vitamins. Is that right? That is correct. And, and many others. And as a favor to you, Jim, and my listeners around the world, I'm not going to sing that tagline, <laughs> even though it's in my head because I've been playing it. Uh, I've been playing the old commercials, getting ready for this uh, this interview. Well, I appreciate appreciate that not, not singing it. Are they still using that? You know, uh, I I see um, commercials every now and then. I have to be watching at the right time of day in order to see one. But I haven't seen one for maybe a year or so. But um, they keep popping up. 
with that jingle, so or that little song. Uh, so I, as far as I know, they're still using it. Yeah, interesting. So I loved the book, and I can tell when an author has been writing their whole life. <laughs> <laughs> you are a writer, sir. Very <laughs> impressed. And uh, the thing is, though, I've been in the agency business only 33 years, and I started out in New York at some of the big agencies there. And as a result, in reading your book, I probably got five times more than the average reader because I've lived through almost every horror you've described <laughs> in this book. And it was just such a visceral reaction. Like, it was funny reading through because every time it, it kind of took me back to a different story. And uh, I, I have found a therapist to start seeing next week. Um, <laughs> so, but, uh, but it, I, I really, I, I commend you for it. And, and actually, I, when I started reading, I thought, oh, it's going to be a lot of uh, real tactical uh, advice, you know, like a David Ogilvy saying, don't use uh, reverse yeah, type. You know how he, right, would always, right. <laughs> he would always beat that horse? Yes. That's, that's not it at all. This is so relevant to right now. But the other thing is that there are so many things in here that go way beyond just advertising. <laughs> and I think it's going to be enormous benefit for uh, people who might be working at companies that aren't necessarily advertising, but they're still trying to communicate. So, and that, those are some of the ones that I wanted to uh, focus on. And as I said, the book is so well written; it's eminently quotable. And I'm going to be quoting from it probably more than I normally do uh, in these interviews. So, let me read just one excerpt from page one, actually. Oh boy. You write, bad advertisements, let's face it, that's most advertisements, don't just create themselves. <laughs> it takes a concerted industry-wide effort involving many entrenched practices, what I call agents of stupidity, to produce what I call bad advertising. This book is an examination, an outing, if you will, of 23 of these agents, many of which also operate in other contexts of human interaction, from families to global businesses to enterprises of all sorts. But because I'm an ad guy, we will be looking at them here through the lens of advertising and the advertising business. Now, Jim Morris, these agents, they're not like James Bond. They're not secret agents. They're, they're toxic agents. Talk more about what these agents are. And, and I guess one of my other questions is, how did you boil it down to just 23? <laughs> well, to answer that question first, I didn't boil it down to 23. <laughs> I've got many more, but I had to stop the book somewhere. And plus, I need material for if there's a follow-up book. So, oh. so I've got, I've already got six or seven or eight you know, other agents that I haven't didn't get to in this oh. book. Well, if you in, do come out with that pocket. second book, just looking ahead, I know this guy who interviews authors of new sales and marketing books. I, <laughs> yeah. I think I yeah. can put a good word in for you. That'd be great. Thanks. Yeah. Appreciate that. <laughs> uh, and as for the, well, so the agents of stupidity, you know, I, you're right. They're agents uh, in, in the more like in the sense of a toxic agent. They're not people and we're not, uh, I'm not trashing individuals in the business or anything like that. Uh, everybody in the business participates in this, in one or more of these uh, agents of stupidity. So that, and it's, and it's just a way of characterizing a dysfunction or a myth or a neurotic, a corporate neurotic practice or something. I just thought I should give them all a common, you know, name a, as a group so that we could refer to them in some intelligible way. Uh, so that, that's really all, all it is. You know, the, the agents aren't really at fault here. Uh, 
because they're just uh, hypothetical things people might do. It's when people actually behave in these ways that they take on, they channel these, these agents of stupidity. And so we all bear some responsibility for um, these behaviors. Right. And it's, or looked at another way, it's like you're explaining certain laws of nature. <laughs> Yeah, right. Because, right. because as yes. soon as I read about him, I was like, oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. I know that. <laughs> and then you would back it up with research, which wasn't necessary for me because I've lived it. <laughs> and the other yeah. thing is uh, you, as a former agency guy, you do not hold back on agency, folks. And that's where having been an agency for so many years, you're spot on. That's some of the things that agencies do. And so for the listener, ad agencies are very capable of uh, doing some of these, and some of these agents of stupidity, I would argue, are more present in the agency world maybe than the the, the client world. Oh, absolutely. And I just wanted to quote uh, another section. You, you write that, anyway, regardless of, of where it's coming from, which way the river's flowing, you write, the illusion that ad agencies and clients often mutually agree to sustain is that they're working together to plot out advertising strategies based on information, facts, insights, solid research, hard numbers, big data, etc. The reality, however, is what is that what both parties very often agree to accept as true and real is just highly speculative, educated guesswork and hypotheses, the stories that this guesswork spawns. Ad agencies and clients enable each other's rationalizations. The story becomes collectively their story, and they're sticking to it. And then actually on that same page... This comes through several times. You write, a central theme that runs throughout this book is, think how much healthier the advertising process would be if clients and agencies recognize that both their decisions and their customers' decisions are based heavily on emotion. So back to uh, another section. that you, you explain that there are three causes of stupidity in advertising. And they are, and I want to ask you to, if you could touch on these three, they are complexity and what you call ad hubris and fear. Yes. Okay. You want me to touch on those? <laughs> okay. And I'll be back in about 45 minutes and see how you're doing. <laughs> okay. No, All right. I'm kidding. Well, There's I'll, other specific things I want to ask you about. Yeah, no, that's fine. I'll just say a little bit about each one. Uh, complexity, this has to do with the fact that you know, we're in a in advertising. We're in the business of simplifying everything. That's that's our job essentially. Is to you you try to figure out who the target audience and you simplify that down into some identifiable group, and then you have to decide on what the message is that you're putting out in your ad, and get that. Uh, boil down to its simplest form, you know, ideally something like a single-minded uh, promise or benefit or something like that. And then uh, you also have to then simplify the execution of the advertisement so it's not a complete jumbled mess. You need to get rid of all the extraneous uh, stuff that might wind up in an ad, get rid of all that stuff so that it's what's left is the message in some interesting form. Uh, so it's all about uh, simplifying stuff. The problem is uh, simplifying is it's a slippery slope because eventually it becomes oversimplifying or what I call 
simplification. And uh, so you can go too far with that, and it can spill over into areas where you shouldn't be so simple because it gets a little a little simple minded you know mm-hmm. so that's so that's the complexity thing um the ad hubris has to do with again this this idea that we present ourselves as as ad agency people to our clients as, as if we know what we're doing as if we have knowledge as if we have a plan that makes sense and so forth and none of that is really exactly true it's how we it's how we present it we are telling a story to our clients about ourselves and about the thinking we have done on behalf of their uh service or product and um so that that's fine but we we present it uh, usually with such an air of certainty that that becomes hubris, and it's very it's very damaging to to do that because now you've kind of painted yourself into a corner, and if you're sure this is going to work, <laughs> this advertisement, well, how could you possibly be sure of it? But you're somehow sure of it, so then that obliges you to have to prove it that it worked somehow, which means you have to make up another story about how sales went up at this point or something, you know, uh, awareness was increased or whatever the goal was. So that that kind of puts you into this constant, constant uh, area where you're always making stuff up and, and essentially a lot of times lying to your client. And the client is reassured by all that certainty, so they buy into it. Okay, so that's... That's the hubris part. Well, let me interject one thing. You <laughs> sure. write, the refusal of people in advertising to own up to this reality condemns the entire industry to permanent status as slick, glib, disingenuous hucksters parading as truth tellers in a world where truth is too complicated, nuanced, and fuzzy for them to grasp. And Jim Morris, I just had to note that when you say slick, glib, disingenuous hucksters yeah. parading as truth tellers, I mean, you write that like it's a bad thing, Jim. <laughs> You know, quick story. I, when I was at Gray in New York, a buddy of mine, pa- Bob Pancook, I don't know if he's listening, but he uh, worked with me on the Panasonic account, and he had worked at the another agency called Deutsch in New York, which was, uh, a lot of people may know, Donnie Deutsch from, I think he, he went into television, MSNBC for a while. Anyway, he, he left to... He left that agency to go to Gray, and and Donnie was saying, "Why do you want to leave? What? Why do you want to go?" And you know, Bob was a young account exec and said, "Well, I want to, I want to go off and you know maybe uh, learn more and work at a really big agency." And he happened to say something like, and, "And I mean, Donnie, you're so knowledgeable. You really, you really know what you're doing." At which point, Donnie Deutsch actually stopped talking, which is hard for a lot of people to believe. He got up, walked over, and shut the door, and he said, "Bob." I have no idea what I'm doing. He says, and don't you let anyone in advertising tell you or give you the impression that they do. <laughs> so, so you see how just yeah. your writing just it brought back all these funny stories. And, yeah. uh, and, and a lot of it I was laughing to keep from crying. But anyway, let's go on to fear. <laughs> sure. Sure. Why not? Okay. So um, fear is, is common to a lot of the – it's kind of an underlying aspect of many of these uh, agents of stupidity that I talk about. Um, and it really has to do with fear of all kinds of things. Fear of failure, you know, with your ad campaign or whatever is something that 
uh, both agency people and the clients uh, uh, have, that fear of failure, but also fear of success sometimes, fear of uh, humiliation, getting to that kind of emotional thing you were talking about. And and uh, the, the fears just get layered one on top of another, fear of risk, fear of, you know, it just goes on and on. And it's very, very inhibiting mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the the work that gets put out, the what gets approved, what's even what even gets considered to be approved, all that it it can really uh, narrow your choices and and turn your advertising more and more invisible. The more fear dictates uh, the the concept. Yes, and I've worked in agencies where. Uh, it was more frightening than serving in the army, <laughs> I, and I think there was more yelling too. So, um, but now before we go much further, just for the folks that are thinking, well, we never do advertising, and what do these two ad dinosaurs have for me? <laughs> yes, you you uh, skewered that in the very beginning. You right as you read on, you may begin to wonder why I talk mostly about old school quote obsolete. TV commercials. Hasn't advertising moved on to deal with today's data-driven contextual advertising? Hasn't it incorporated online videos, mobile ads, social media ads, experiential marketing, and micro-targeted programmatic campaigns? You write, not exactly. So defend yourself and explain why you take that approach, which is the based on a lot of your experience. Yeah, okay. Because I've I've done my share of kind of digital, you know, online ads and that kind of stuff and website content and so forth. <clears throat> but ultimately, uh, advertising the the things that that I have to say about uh, TV and radio and print ads, all that old school stuff. Mostly, almost all of it applies to the creation and production of of. Um, Digital uh, kinds of communications because it's a, it's a lot of the same thing. You're still talking to somebody. You still have a message to deliver, right? I mean, and and you try to find an interesting way to deliver it. And that that's that's it. Regardless of the medium, it doesn't really make a difference what the medium is. All of these, th- almost all these things I'm talking about apply uh, equally. So it's a little simpler. To, to talk about stuff that we all are familiar with having at least grown up with, right? Uh, t- TV, and maybe you don't watch TV anymore and you're just online all the time on your phone or whatever, but, but, uh, it, it, it helps ha- to have some kind of common experience that we've all sort of had at least as kids, even if we don't watch advertising any, anymore. So that was really what my thinking was. Keep it simple. It all applies to everything anyway. So let's talk about something we have some common experience of. It truly does. And you have a great quote from Peter Carter, Group Director of Brand Building and Integrated Communications at Procter & Gamble. And he wrote, mm-hmm. or he said, many modern marketers don't realize that while advertising platforms have changed, how human beings consume advertising has not. I contend that Facebook works like out of home. Pandora works like old-time radio, and Twitter works like newspaper headlines. What's old is new again. Are you sick of your competitors outranking you in search results? Wish there was an easier way to get more Google traffic? What if I told you that you could monitor your website's SEO health, backlinks, and organic rankings, and then get clear and simple advice on what to do to fix it so you can increase your website visibility on Google for free? 
With the new Ahrefs Webmaster Tools, you can do it. They'll help you quickly improve your site's Google visibility by showing you over 100 technical issues that might be holding back your site's search performance, as well as how to simply fix them. Plus, the tool shows the sites that link to you so you'll know your most linked pages and the keywords your pages are ranking for in order to tweak your content and increase your monthly organic search traffic. This used to be something reserved for professional SEOs who had special knowledge and access to expensive tools, but now you can do this in minutes with Ahrefs Webmaster Tools for free. And this isn't one of those 14-day free trial offers. It's a super powerful tool that'll do a full website audit for you and keep working for you for free. You know, when you realize just how valuable this free tool is and how much it can help grow your business, you might want to think about showing your appreciation by sending the host of the Marketing Book Podcast a bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon. Something to think about, just putting it out there. I'm kidding. Not really. But seriously, we've been using Ahrefs at my firm for years, and I'm delighted to have them back as a sponsor. Check out Ahrefs Webmaster Tools at ahrefs.com slash A-W-T. That's A-H-R-E-F-S dot com slash A-W-T. I'll also include the link in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com and include a video that shows you how it works. Let's move on and get into to, uh, a couple of the details here. And I wanted to ask you to explain the following from page 15 for those playing the home game. We would all be well served to remind ourselves and our clients every day just how unimportant ads are to our target audiences in the larger scheme of things. And we must always be aware of how advertising sophisticated these audiences are. Jim Morris, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, that's that's a that's a point that I I was told throughout my career up until I stopped working at ad agencies by almost anybody that would that wanted to talk to me about anything. Do not ever say that out loud. <laughs> Everybody knows it's true, but don't say it out loud to the client, for instance, because if they think that you think that their product or their service and the ads about it aren't important, well, they're going to fire the agency right immediately. So, and so you. it was one of those unspoken truths. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, it was, it, it's something that needed to be said, and, and I will defend it because, you know, you live your life, and occasionally, you know, you come across uh, an, an ad that you actually notice. And that's, that's fine as far as it goes, but most of the time, most of the ads that are supposed to be getting into your head, you know, are expo you're exposed to them in some way or another. You're driving down the road and there's billboards or you're reading a magazine and there's print ads or you're watching TV or you're online and ads are popping up. Uh, so that, that all happens, but that doesn't mean you notice everything because most stuff doesn't really matter to you. I don't care about, you know, 90% of the products and services out there because they're not for me. And so it's just not, it's not an important part of the day. Whereas in the, in the industry, we spend countless hours with a magnifying glass over go, going over every little uh, detail. And that's our job. And that's a, that's a good thing, but it, it skews your perspective and you start thinking it's important. And it's it's not in a certain in a certain way. Right? <laughs> right. So. Yeah, they completely forget that context, and I can just it, it brought to mind for me, you know, um, 
sitting on the other side of one of those mirrors where they would show a commercial to someone and have them look yeah. through it very carefully. <laughs> it's just, yes. That is, that's like, uh, there was an expression on a recent book where it said, if you want to learn about your customers, go to the jungle, not the zoo. And <laughs> that's good. <laughs> watching this person, you know, watch your commercial. That's, oh, yeah. boy. Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah. So yeah. there's another uh, very controversial thing here, and it was still the, still the beginning of the book. This is why I couldn't put it down. You write, most advertisers waste most or all of their money on the advertising they produce. Wow. You're really going out with a bang here, Mr. Morris. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, what are they going to do, fire me? <laughs> right. <laughs> but explain that. It, it, it's not. Uh, it's not exactly what people might think. <clears throat> no, it's not. So okay. I mean, you. Uh, if you're the agency and the client, you work together. You create an ad or an ad campaign of some form, right? And you you decide on what media the ad, the ads are going to uh, be presented to the world in, <clears throat> and you go ahead and do that. But let's say you you decide that's going to be. For instance, uh, billboards, you know, you, which is unlikely these days that you would choose that, but but some people still pay money for billboards. Yeah, and so, actually, there are billboards where they can sell day parts. They're they're digital, you know. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so right. So that's fine. And let's let's even say they manage to uh, place a billboard um, along a road that I'm driving by, and I'm a potential member of the target audience. Okay, so I'm driving by the billboard because I'm driving, but I see something, you know, I'm distracted by something on the on the billboard. So I, I look up at it, but I can't make any any sense of it because all of the words are so small. I couldn't possibly read them because the people who designed the ad didn't take that into account. They they proportioned it as if it were a print ad yes. ten, 10 inches from your face. Mm-hmm. You know, so so I can't even see, you know, there's there's the logo. I can't make out the sponsor of the ad. Who who's it? Who's it? You know, meanwhile, I got to get back to, to driving. I don't have time to process all this stuff like that. So that ad, you know, doesn't reach, you know, they think, well, you know, uh, 150,000 cars drive by this billboard every day, right? But <laughs> how many of, of those people actually even notice the ad? Or have time to process the ad, and if they process it, does it have any effect on them? And it's probably, the answer to almost all of those questions is uh, not not really. No, it's not it's not going to happen. So, and so I'm just arguing. And you know, there's lots of other kinds of ads. Like, what if you put? What if you're a retail guy? Guy, you've got a grocery store, and you put uh, flyers in the newspaper, local newspaper, with your sales. Right, mm-hmm. a lot of people do that and that's that's good it works so that's an that's an example of um of when i when i'm making statement about they waste all their money that'd be hyperbole because right. uh, there are some people who seek out those flyers and go over them they are you know bargain hunting uh coupon hunting uh, right like you consumer. said you throw them away but your wife uses them yeah exactly mm-hmm. and and so uh, that's you know Whatever that percentage of people who look at the, of course, nobody reads the newspapers anyway. Anymore, so, so that's a bad example. But, uh, but my my point is, most ads go out into the world, and you, the target audience, never even 
see them. So there's really no chance that it's going to have any potential to affect your behavior if you never see the ad. And so that that sounds to me like a waste of money. Yes. And that's the, you know, that's when I was arguing with the um, publisher about the subtitle for the book, I was arguing hard to include the word invisible in my series of ins, uh, I, I would even trade off invisible for ineffective because invisible is, by definition, ineffective. Mm-hmm. And that's, to me, what most advertising is. The other, the other aspect of that, if you don't mind my going on and on, <laughs> is that we're all trained from an early age how to ignore ads. You know, we are blind to, I mean, you know, when you're on a computer and those ads are showing up uh, here and there, I never... I never see any of those ads. Do you? I, I don't see them. I, I, I'm aware they're there. I don't, but I don't see it, so I can't process it. So it can't affect me. It, let me add to that and quote from your book. You write the problem is that people don't suffer from ad blindness. They cultivate and value it. <laughs> exactly, because you have to. Because we're inundated with all this, all this stuff all the time. It's yes. exhausting, and we, in order to survive. As a species, we have to, you know, abstract our reality out of the, all of the stuff, the input that's coming in. And so it's our job as humans to ignore advertising for the most part. Yes, and there have been some books on the show about the human brain, and it talk. I, yeah. I remember that a number of them explain that the human brain is a really well-developed ignoring machine. Yeah. And it's helped us survive, because you can't pay attention to everything. You have to look for the tiger that's coming after you or right. something. Yeah. So let's get, get into one of these uh, agents of stupidity specifically. Right. And <laughs> I, this goes way beyond advertising. And it's uh, what you call executive blindness. And again, I got a quote here. I'm sorry, but many of the many of the denizens of the C-suite and those folks a rung or two below them tend to buy into their own bowl. They drink their own Kool-Aid, and then later on, just when I was starting to calm down, you write, "What universe do they live in? Do these people not ever talk to anyone outside their sequestered brand cult? What?" What is this? Talk more about this executive blindness and how it happens. And actually, I don't know if there's anything you can do about it. Yeah, I I don't think that there's anything that we can do about. It. Again, it's part other of the than problem. be aware of it. Well, right, exactly. That that's been that that's been kind of what I've been trying to get across in the book that um, has made it so hard to get it published. Is that it's not a problem solution business book. It's a problem business book you know <laughs> and and so that's uh harder to to sell one that doesn't have all the answers you know i have a few suggestions for answers but so anyway executive blindness something i i just i've experienced it too often myself and everybody i know has stories about some guy some muckety muck whether it's on the client side or the agency side doesn't really matter um who is truly um uh, isolated and is obsessive about being uh, in the in the C-suite. That these people are extremely ambitious, and they focus entirely on that, and that requires them to do a lot of um, schmoozing and a lot of, you know, paying attention internally to their organization. And I don't think that these people, generally speaking, 
watch a lot of TV or spend a lot of time online reading online ads and, and so forth, I don't think they get exposed to uh, advertising, and I don't. I also don't think they get exposed to their own customers much. You know, they're so removed. True. That that how would they even? They don't have a sensibility. You know, the the people in the trenches in advertising and the clients tend to more often have some some kind of an idea of who it is that they're hoping to persuade, but but the the executives they they don't, and it's revealed whenever. You know the process requires that we go and show the the CEO or whatever the new ad campaign that we're going to try to sell to the client, and and they look at it and it's in it's kind of like in a vacuum. You know, oh, they, very much they, so. They haven't been thinking about anything like this all day long because they're working on the politics and the uh, you know the acquisitions and the, you know, all, that, <laughs> all that kind of stuff, and they don't really spend much time. You know, actually, they don't. A lot of these people never created an ad they don't come from that end of the business and stuff so they don't they already don't exactly know what the deal is and then they get a, they get shown this campaign they have to react to it they got to act like they know what they're talking about and so they find something to criticize because that's the easiest thing mm-hmm. you know it's much more risky and here's where fear comes in much more risky to watch a or or, or get shown a, an ad campaign and like it and actually say so out loud because you set yourself up for being seen as a fool if uh if then you go and try to sell it to the client and they hate it you know <laughs> and now you've committed yourself to liking something they hate mm. and you've got to smooth that over and you know it just goes on and on so criticizing is is much much easier but the things they criticize are just nuts i think i, I say in the book there was this one uh campaign for i think it was a rent-a-car company or something uh ad campaign and and the uh ceo was invited into the editing suite oh, to see the you had to be making this story up i could not believe it this is uh honestly true and the guy the guy looks at the campaign and he's got a lot of uh snarky critical things to say about he 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 really doesn't like it and and as he's going out the door he says and the color of those uniforms is just awful you got to change that and he walks but that was the color of their uniforms <laughs> they didn't make it up in the advertising that's that's what this guy approved at some point so you know that's an indication of what i call executive blindness you just they just aren't seeing what what everybody else is seeing basically. yes well before we move on to the next one i just have to quote one more thing you, you're right there are no doubt many brands whose custodians have a realistic grasp on what their brands actually mean to their customers and others but i can guarantee you that these brands constitute a minority of all the brands out there. That's the first time I've ever seen the word Garen Frigantee <laughs> in a book in over 300 interviews. <laughs> well, good. So let's move on to one other thing where you talk about the message is everything. And you quote uh, Les Binet and Sarah Carter, and I've read, I've seen their names and their research in some other books. Very mm-hmm. interesting. And I want you to talk a little bit about this quote from a research study they did where they write that campaigns that contain little or no product message but work instead by appealing to our emotions or herd instinct, the two usually go together, turn out to be twice as effective as conventional message advertising. Now, this is this rubs up against people who say, no, it's really just the message. It's, it's really 
you know, just the facts. And again, I go back to some of these campaigns I've worked on where they were just blurting out these rational facts and they couldn't understand where their market share was going down. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so that's a, that was a, a revelation to me too. When I read that, um, they, those two had a column in a British uh, kind of research journal called uh, AdMap that is no longer uh, in hard copy form, but I think it's part of some website somewhere. Uh, and, Anyway, they, they were consistently uh, revelatory in the things that they would be telling about in their columns, and they're really, really good. So anyway, that's, that's an interesting thing. And I, the more I thought about that, I, I thought about you know, how, how advertising that's successful is often successful and has to do with, being, with evoking an emotion. You know, mm-hmm. that, that's really – it's more about evoking an emotion – and you're less likely to evoke an emotion just by stating a uh, you know single-minded uh, promise or benefit than you are if you wrap it in some emotional kind of package, which is very often uh, humor, but not but not always. So, and, and then related to that notion is another notion from another uh, group of uh, British smart ad people <clears throat> that has to do with likability, which I have a chapter on. And and they have studies that show that the likability, the way they define that term, is the single most important uh, factor or characteristic of an ad. It's most closely associated with successful advertising of of anything is, is likability. And to me, that was interesting because I've never heard that word used <laughs> at an ad agency ever <laughs> about an ad. Yes, so, and that's about 20 pages later, and that is exactly what I was going to ask you next. That's ah, <laughs> like we're cut from the same cloth. <laughs> you, you write, uh, it was, you talk about uh, in that same section, an author named Eric Duplessis. Yeah. Uh, and he has a book called The Advertised Mind. I learned about so many other books in, in your book, and I appreciate that. Sure. And he, I, I, I was just blown away, and I, you know, I've been in—I had been in the ad world for for quite a while, a while. But actually, you talk then about what makes an ad unlikable, mm-hmm. and uh, I guess this is still his, yeah, his is his research, yeah, and it it's is, three huh? three things, and maybe you could explain what these are. <laughs> but when something is confusing, alienating, or overly familiar yeah confusing alienating and overly familiar yeah yeah well confusing isn't that hard to understand because i mean i think i have a whole nother chapter on the and what i call the age of huh yes which which has to do with you know i i i can't tell you often i'm watching a commercial about at the level of attention that most people are which is just barely but i'm sort of watching it and then i it comes to the end of commercial and i have no idea what was going on what happened what did they say yes What what was the point never mind who's the ad for but just what and it's it's incomprehensible because, well, it's incomprehensible, you know, but let me add, you also yeah. quote some research that show the very large number of people 
who yeah. are hardly watching advertising and are still confused. Yes, yes, that, that's right. Yeah, there's, this happens a lot, yeah. obviously, to a lot of people. And, you know, if, if you get confused by an ad, it's a, sort of the same thing as not having seen it because you can't retain incomprehensibleness you know and so you can't again if you can't retain that information and put it in your memory then you have nothing to act on in that regard so that's that's the uh confusingness thing and it's just really common and a lot of it has to do with uh everybody in the agency and at the client being too close to everything yes. and assuming too much about what people know or care about and that kind of thing or they're trying also- to cram five pounds of crap in a one pound yes. bag <laughs> that's right yeah that's the other thing is with the speeding up of everything and the condensing and compressing of all of our communications the chance of confusingness uh, increases a lot yeah well and also you talk again I've, I've 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 lived through this where somebody makes a great 60 second commercial but the media plan called for like 80 percent 15 second commercials yeah Right. Nobody bothered to, you know, <laughs> no, think that one through. Yeah, right. right. A, little, a little bit. Yes, I've been a victim of that many times in my my career, and it it can actually go both ways because I I, I if I'm not mistaken, I once had an assignment to do a 30 second spot, and then they decided they wanted to have a 60 as well, <laughs> and that that's much harder to do than to cut something down. From oh wow, 36. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's another story. So okay, let's see. So confusing. Alienating. Alienating. Okay. So <clears throat> alienating. I think. I think if I remember correctly from <laughs> from uh, from what I read from these guys, I borrowed this whole thing from those. Eric oh, it was great. Guys. Yeah, really good. But um, the alienating thing just has to do with uh, either the the content of the commercial is really really off putting or demeaning or some, something along those lines, and so it, you know. It doesn't matter what your message is because they already they already hate you, so it doesn't matter. I'll right. give you an, I'll give you an example um, th- that I probably shouldn't do this, but um, and this is again we get into really subjective areas here. So anything that I'm saying at this point has an asterisk saying, well, you know, I could be wrong, and it's not it's not it might just be me. And right, but we've that, already but, set the stage by so, talking about emotions. Yeah, know, okay, all right. This whole thing so, is fraught with that. So the progressive campaign, from what I understand, progressive insurance ad campaign, the TV campaign, is uh, highly controversial from what I what I read, what little I've read about it. Uh, and I, I didn't know that until I read this. I thought everybody hated it as much as I as I do, but apparently not. There are this is the campaign with uh, Flo, and she has a kind of a sidekick, a goofy sidekick guy, uh-huh. and and the the whole campaign. I, I never really understood what her reason for being was or how how we're supposed to receive her or whatever, but it all feels so dang inbred and self-congratulatory and aren't we clever and it, just everything about it is so overly self-conscious and and in love with itself, <laughs> and it, it drives me nuts. So I find that to be alienating, uh-huh. completely alienating. You know, and, and I'm I'm one of those rare people who act on my uh, brand allegiances. So so I will never be a progressive insurance co- customer for that right. for that reason. You know, so that I think that's what alienating. But you right. told me you you just read the book. I haven't. Yeah, read I know you didn't read this last oh, week no, when I read it. No, I did. They say it's um. <laughs> It just put it's what you said. It just puts viewers off. 
Um, yeah. It could be repetitive or insulting, or perhaps one of the people on screen just rubs viewers the wrong way. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, alienation could also be triggered when ads express or suggest a belief or value that viewers don't share. I mean, yeah. I, there's a lot more of it than I think uh, is out there. And then the overly familiar. Uh, yeah. That's and another that, one. That's that, And that's easy because that's, I mean, they say familiar. That's, I think, the term they use, but it seems clear to me they're talking about overly familiar, which means when it's an ad or an ad spokesman or an ad, any element of an ad that you've seen a million times before, you know, from other advertisers or from this advertiser or whatever, it, you've just seen it to death, you know, the the same joke or the same uh, scenario that, oh. that goes on. So as an example, I, I regard this as an example. Maybe other people wouldn't. Pharmaceutical TV advertising is overly familiar in, in the sense that every single TV spot for a drug is is essentially the same spot. They have <laughs> they cast different people, and you might be watching them play shuffleboard, or you might be watching them have a barbecue, or you might be watching them doing you know any number of healthy, acti- active, day to day activities, and doing a lot of smiling and laughing. Yeah, you know, way more way more than ever happens in the world. All yeah. of that is both uh, alienating and overly familiar. I've seen that commercial a million times. I don't want to see, you know, show me a different way to sell your drug other than this lifestyle baloney, you know, completely yes. disingenuous baloney that no one would buy as being, these aren't real people. They're like, Types, you know? Yeah, they're like uh, those stock photos that are so irritating. Yeah. I, I'm sorry, Jim Morris, yeah. I can't resist. You write, pharma commercials that depict active seniors doing active things, smiling and laughing, while the ad bludgeons us with endless legal disclaimers and lists of side effects. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah oh. no, no one can read them, and, you know, yeah. but it makes, it makes the government happy, so they have yes, to do it. Yes, it's so odd. Or you say a fancy car. Here's a, here's a really original idea for all you uh, young ad people. A fancy <laughs> car driving along a scenic mountain road or down a city street at night with all the lights reflecting off the wet pavement. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, overly familiar, right? So So let's uh, go on to another concept that I just found so interesting, and that's the uh, what you call simplistification. (laughs) You write the complexity of the human brain and the complexity of consumer behavior and the factors that affect it, overlaid with the complexity of the ever shifting sands of our socio cultural landscape within which all this thinking, feeling, and behaving takes place provides fertile ground for simplistification, the process by which something is made so simple that it becomes misleading, deceitful, and or harmful. So could you talk a bit about this (laughs) simplistification and actually, let me just add to that. You, a few pages later, you write, advertising is especially, is especially prone to simplistification as a strategy for dealing with complexity, partly because as a discipline, it is not very well equipped to handle complexity. And again, that brought forth an idea where over the years, when I was doing a lot of advertising, it's like I, I was scratching for ways to try to explain that this is a blunt object. <laughs> this isn't a yes. scalpel we're dealing with. Yes, <laughs> well, that's for sure. I'm tempted to just say, well, 
I'd like to try to help you understand what simplification is, but it's more complicated than that. Because ah! so pretty much everything is that. Uh, so, so I don't know how much uh, helpfulness I'm going to have here other than to say that these the, the, the advertising is caught in this uh, dilemma where it has to simplify everything, right? The, it has to narrow the target audience down to some finite group of people, and then it has to narrow the message down to something that's simple and clear and hopefully compelling. But it, that, that means it has to get really, really simple. Otherwise, it gets confusing, and that we, that there's that confusion thing. So, so, so our job, our calling is to simplify the story down. But if you get it beyond a certain level of simpleness, you know, and that, that can be simpleness in the way that people are characterized, then you fall into this trap of, uh, of showing types, you know, like, like in the, on those pharmaceutical ads, types of people, one dimensional, flat, obviously not fully formed humans <laughs> who are, who are the protagonists for your product. That's, that's one way in which simple gets to be too simple, right? And in other parts of the advertising world, especially the research part um, and the trying to measure the success part of advertising, those things can get uh, – th that simpleness is also a, a big problem because, you know, the, <laughs> the research has to uh, specify something that happens – with the product or the service as a result of the advertising. And that often means uh, simplifying. Uh, this starts connecting to uh, another chapter in the book, which is about uh, causation yes. and, and correlation, right? Where one, one form of simplification is to characterize correlation, which is easier to uh, establish, right? Uh, with causation, which is much harder to establish because it would be much more complicated. I'm, I, this is very, very abstract. Well, yeah, and I, but I, that's one of the things I want to talk about. But the, the thing that just got me on this particular chapter, this concept of simplification, is that we want things to be simple, and people are only too quick to want to try and make it simple for us. And I would mm -hmm. be very... Uh, worried, or I again, like so many things in your book, be wary of people who are trying to make these things simple. And again, you know, this is part of the Amen chorus where you wrote, These marketing research experts perpetuate the myth that advertising is to some degree a science, or at least scientific, by drawing from the fields of psychology, social psychology, anthropology, sociology, and the neurosciences. They do studies, they produce data. But regardless of the kinds of surveys, focus groups, and quantitative tests that produce the data they interpret, all of their research is predicated on what consumers report to them in one form or another. And if you don't mind, there's just one other part i got to quote here because this is so important for people to be aware of and be wary of because we want things to be simple. 
well, we want to ignore things, but <laughs> yeah, right, we want a right. simple answer. And I want to talk, if we have time, about the segmentation thing. Where You write, as we in the advertising world tried to boil all this activity and interaction down to some abstracted, simplified representation of reality, attempting to render the incomprehensible comprehensible and discern general predictive patterns based on limited specific behavior and firsthand reports of individuals' thoughts and feelings about the best we can do is to look for patterns and generalizations that are, by definition, imprecise. All we can do is stand ready to offer full disclosure of the limits of our knowledge and understanding at every possible opportunity. The line between simple and simplistic is an elusive one, and we should all try much harder to toe that line than we currently do. We must constantly remind ourselves that whatever strategy, target audience, media plan, testing method, or metric we advocate, it's never as simple as we try to make it. The best we can do is guess because we're dealing with phenomenal indecipherable complexity simply acknowledging that what we stitch together in advertising is just a guesswork quilt would be a powerful antidote for the toxic brew of simplistication so thank you for letting me read that it's just this is like this is like i don't need a therapist i'm talking to jim morris i just read his book but let's let's go on to this neuromarketing because we, we started to touch on that and there's um you're hearing a lot about it, and I got to jump to this one part where you write ad agencies and their clients would be well advised to resist the mesmerizing appeal of brain imaging and the illusion of precision, accuracy, and understanding that it offers. The kind and quality of information it provides can be treacherously misleading and extremely vulnerable to misinterpretation. Now, full disclosure, or I have a confession to make, there have been a number of books on the show that talk about a lot of new research based on fMRI machines, functional MRI machines. And I find that fascinating. But you, again, have a word of warning about all that and, and neuromarketing. Could, could you just touch on that? Well, I might be able to. <laughs> it's it's the uh, I confess the area that I have. The, I mean, I'm I am not a neuroscientist, so I was really dabbling in an area that was dangerous for me to you know, little knowledge is a dangerous thing kind of situation. I did the best I could <laughs> with it, but I mean, it seems like there's a, a at least one fairly obvious fundamental problem with with using this kind of uh, neuroimaging of the brain, activity in the brain and this and that area to um, to help understand how people th are thinking, feeling, are behaving. And, and it's because even if the, if, if the FM, FM, you know, you, you put a person in the machine, already it's an, an artificial environment, so it doesn't, to me, it's invalid just on its face because right. they're in a machine. Now they're not doing going about their lives. Like showing and, a TV commercial to a focus group. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just that artificial, more so maybe. Yeah. So you're in the machine and they expose you to some image or something. I don't know what they're trying to accomplish, but they, but they show you that image and then, and they're taking pictures of your brain and the, and there's a brain activity that shows up in this part of the brain. They circle, it's happening here. Well, that's the area of the brain that has to do with, uh, you know, fear and, you know, and, and then, you know, they build this big story up. Well, and it's sort of, 
it might sort of be true what they're saying, but our understanding of the uh, organization, the complexity of the brain is so primitive right now that even a modest claim about this area of the brain deals with such and such human emotion or whatever is already a stretch. It's already just a hypothesis because, again, it's more complicated than that. Right. You know, it turns out, you know, the, the more they study it, the more they find that, that the brain is a thoroughly integrated, uh, or, uh, organ, I guess, that, uh, so that something like fear, for instance, might might show up in lots of places in the brain. We don't know where to look for it. Then you're not going to see it if you're not looking in that part of the brain. And and then, is it really about fear, or is it about stimulation? You know, is it is that just something that we're processing more intensely? Uh, might not be fear, you know, and so forth. It's it. There's so much uh, uh, theorizing going on about about the brain and so little actual understanding of it that we're way too early to the party as advertisers, I think. You know, and and again it it lends to the agency's ability to tell a story and and try to anchor it in some sort of validity to their client if they can add that tool. But it's it's almost certain to be uh misused in some way. Well it brought to mind for me the idea of a Maybe an X-ray from 100 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> That's about where we are. Yeah, right. Maybe not even that. Yeah, far, maybe 125 right. years yeah. ago. And I, yeah. I can't resist. This just stuck in my head. You wrote Craig Bennett, a this is from a Forbes article. Craig Bennett, a neuroscientist at UC Santa Barbara, wrote a report this year about running a dead Atlantic salmon through an MRI machine. The result showed signals of brain activity similar to the ones neuromarketers see when testing commercials on consumers. Quote, you could say the salmon liked one brand of peanut butter over another brand, quote, says Bennett, but it was dead. <laughs> yes, oh. I think that, that makes the point uh, more eloquently than anything I could say about it. But Yes, uh, yes. It's just so dangerous. You know, the, the industry is so magnetically drawn to the latest shiny object, you know, that it just can't help itself. I know. It's, it's uh, horrible. It's a recurring theme in the book and also in this, in this conversation. I got to jump to something else that is sure. really, really big with marketers and, and, and business people. Again, this goes way beyond advertising. And I just want you to explain this other – it's like every other chat, a paragraph has something that's explosive. Okay, here's another one. For, this is about uh, what you call segmental illness <laughs> on page 140. For many advertising people, segmentation has become more than simply a useful tool. It's become a full-fledged religion. Whoa! <laughs> but it's true. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, I was going to say, in your experience, am I wrong? No! No, <laughs> okay. again, it's just like uh, wanting to find, it's like the, the, the thing about the oversimplification, the yeah. word you made up. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> but but it's, um, this, it's this yearning to want things really easy, and could you just touch upon what you know what grinds your gears about this this segmentation and there's sure sure yeah so the segmentation you know there are companies out there who um, their whole job is to provide uh, advertisers with uh, populations you know their target audience broken down in 
in uh, certain ways having to do with uh, some list of characteristics of those people that they all have in common. They are, so you know a segment, but and it and it's done differently by every company. So uh, people are you know groups of people are broken down in many many different ways by different companies, which already makes you wonder you know <laughs> it, if they're if they're making stuff up here. But you know so you you might be in a in a group that uh, you like import cars, you read Forbes, and you. You, you like uh, sushi and, you know, and some other list of eight or ten attributes, you know, of, of people in this segment. And so because they have all these things in common, the theory is they will behave similarly, you know, which is uh, maybe, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But, but uh, you know, I once, uh, I once was working on a project and I just thought, well, I'm, I'm going to test this on myself here a little bit so I, <laughs> so I so i looked at you know a bunch of segments that were like 17 everybody breaks out into one of these 17 groups and then they have very clever funny weird yes. names and stuff like that uh-huh. but okay so and it's based on behaviors and attitudes things they like and don't like and all that kind of thing and i looked through it and i found three segments that you could arguably put me in based on that list of uh of characteristics, you know, three, there were three where I sort of fit a little bit in each one of them, but I didn't fit at all, really, in in any of them because there were it was like contradictory stuff. I might have this characteristic that puts me in segment A, but I have a different characteristic which takes me out of segment A and puts me in segment B. So there, you know, it's it's conflicting, and it's that's such a mess that I I just have a hard time uh, understanding why it's so sacrosanct, you know, in the in the industry somehow. Yeah, I oh. mean, just because it's easy. Uh, yeah, know, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and you're right. The dangers of segmental illness. <laughs> hey, you know what? Segmental illness. That should become. You should make a pharma ad. You could make a pharma ad <laughs> about every one of these, Jim. <laughs> Sure. I'm full of ideas I don't have to implement. All right. Yeah, you'll help me pitch that. (laughs) The dangers of segmental illness are rooted in the fact that segments aren't about the individual people who may be assigned to them. They are simply statistical abstractions. And then you go on to write, this tone of certainty and this claim of scientific accuracy is a primary reason why segmental illness qualifies as an agent of stupidity. It comes down simply to the story these zealots tell. Ask your doctor if you may have segmental illness. Now, that's not in the book. I just made that part up. But it's, it's oh, my goodness. I mean, yeah. Okay, now, there's another thing uh, that we started to touch on, and I wanted to ask you about that. Let me just flip over here. And that is about uh, the, the metric mess. Okay, so everybody wants to talk about ROI, and, yeah. and you call it the metric mess. And uh, let me just read. You may think that measuring the success of an ad or ad campaign is fairly straightforward. You know what your sales are currently. You run an ad campaign. Sales either go up or go down or stay the same. If sales goes up, the campaign is successful, right? (laughs) It was probably that ad agency, right? (laughs) Remind folks about the the problem here. And here's the, the thing that I think is so important. We naturally want to know exactly which dollar or which tactic led to the sale. And I think it's much healthier if we can all just agree that it stop waiting for that to happen. I mean, don't you think that people just have this, just like we talked about, they want to to know 
very scientifically exactly how it worked, and it it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't because once again, it's more complicated than that. So, you know, a- any ad campaign you put out there in the world, um, you have some, you may have some evidence of it that it might be effective for this target audience if you've done marketing research. So already that's questionable, right? So you put the ad out there and, uh, sales do in fact go up. Well, but that's, that's one of many, many variables that are uh, at play that have, you know, I mean, for marketing people, they know that there's things, there's things other than the advertising, right? There's price and there's all that, you know, there's seasonality that can happen. There's uh, all uh, supply issues, uh, relationships with uh, retailers and all. There's all kinds of variables out there, many of which are uncontrollable and and kind of untraceable you can't even track them that may have had an effect on the sales of that product or service and so because because of that you can't really uh honestly attribute the success of an ad campaign you know if sales go up and unless you are able to account for all of those other variables that may have contributed to the success of the uh, of the product so that basically that's that's the problem it's it's just more complicated there's more variables and we can't account for them all we can't explain it all so that's what that's why I I'm always saying this is kind of like trial and error you know you have a theory about uh who the audience is what message will affect them and you know in what form that the ad takes that's a theory and you put it out there maybe it works maybe it doesn't maybe you never know you know, if things continue to go well, you might continue to do the advertising, but you don't ever really know if the advertising was the key critical variable. Right, and there's there we should do everything we can to try to measure it, but stop looking for this pot of gold yes. <laughs> at the end of the at the end of the rainbow. And just another quote, you write, in this age of big data, the potential to acquire the potential to acquire very precise data seems infinite. Unfortunately, precision seems to imply accuracy when this is often not the case. And you go on to write, I will forever be baffled by clients who either can't answer the question at all or who choose the cheapest or most convenient metric to measure their success as meaningless as that metric may be. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so... Earlier, you talked about causation and correlation, and I know some listeners are familiar with this concept, but I think it bears repeating. <laughs> Maybe in every interview I do. <laughs> it's, just, it's so important, and you know, yeah. it reminds me of, did you know that shark attacks go up when ice cream sales do? Yeah, right. You write, in this era of big data, the potential for establishing correlations is infinite. As a result, the danger of identifying correlations and mistakenly assuming that they are causative is also enormous. This has always been a problem in advertising, but these days it's a huge problem. So s- step back and let's let's give this its its due. Explain the uh, causation correlation confusion. That's the name okay. of the chapter. The causation yeah. correlation confusion. Really important <laughs> for marketers to understand. 
okay, so as marketers, you you do things, right, to promote your product or your service, to try to get it to uh, grow, as the brand to grow and so forth in whatever way you do. And, I, you know, I'm just talking about advertising, so we'll, we'll stick to that. But uh, it's true for a lot of other things you might do. So, okay, so you create an ad campaign and you run it for a certain amount of time and you track your, your sales just to keep things simple. And uh, you run the campaign, and uh, your your ads, your sales go up, and so therefore you you look at the two lines, and you conclude that the ads contributed to the sales. That the one that it was it was causative. That that the ads caused sales to go up. In in a very in the most simple kind of case. And every ad agency case study will state that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, however, again, going back to this problem of all these uh, variables out there that you don't even you're not even necessarily aware of and you can't do anything about, it it may well be that you ran the ad campaign, but independent of that, your ad sales went up anyway had nothing to do with your ad campaign. You don't really have a way of being certain. That it was your ad campaign. It may have been the fact that you had a program going with uh, distributors and you know, retailers or whatever. You had uh, you know, all kinds of deals happening where, so that they would show put more product on the shelf or some, something like that. Yeah, or that might have been going on or something you can't even anticipate. Yeah, like your sales could have gone up 10%, but your category sales went up 25%. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. And and so that kind of thing happens all the time. And it's so easy to, you know, identify a correlation that can be done. No, no problem. But to determine whether that actually had anything to do with what happened, whether it's causative, in other words, is a whole nother question. And very often can't be, it can't be answered. And so you, you try different things and you, you hope for the best and it looks like maybe what you did made a difference but but you you can't be you can't be sure it's just not it's just not so easily nailed down and so it, that's an important thing to keep in mind it's part of this whole ad hubris thing where we think we've got it all figured out but we don't. We only have it figured out um, in a very, you know, uh, facile kind of way, where we where we do things like mistaking causation for causality. So. Right. And so the shark attacks happen in the summer when it's warm, when people are swimming in the ocean, and they're also buying ice cream at the same time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they have nothing to do with each other. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think I the I tell a story in the. In the book about my experience I had with a uh, company that sells uh, kind of packaged meats, and uh, they had me do a TV spot, one one TV spot, and it ran in the summer of a particular year for six weeks. It was on for six weeks, and then it was off. And during that time, they looked at their sales, and the sales went up about I think twenty or twenty five percent during that period of time. And apparently that was even in comparison to uh, the year before, that same period of six weeks at, during the summer. So it went up 25%. So they, they attributed it. I have no idea, but they attributed the increase in sales for those six weeks to the TV spot, which is, you know, that 
that's good. I mean, maybe, you know, or maybe there was something else going on that we don't, that we don't know about. You know, I, I, I don't know. I'm not so confident as they are, but, but the odd little uh, kicker on that one was they, even though they attributed this increase to that TV spot, they never ran the spot again, <laughs> which, which I found to be really odd. Well, maybe they. Well, maybe it was a capacity issue, but that I think you should call that the Jim Morris effect. I mean, they they wanted to believe that it was Jim Morris's ad that did that. Oh my goodness! Well, I want to jump back to something that it's kind of connected to the executive blindness, but it's really, really important uh, in in any kind of content or running running a, a business, and that is this one chapter you have called "Me, Me, Meness." <laughs> yes. And it's a self-orientation that, that humans have. And uh, it, it, I, I just got a quote. It, it talks about how hard it is for people to put themselves in another person's shoes. Uh, empathy, I sometimes think, is the, maybe the most important word yeah. <laughs> in advertising yeah. and sales. And that doesn't mean sorrow, compassion, or pity. It's just putting yourself in the other person's shoes, even a little bit. And uh, you say... Putting yourself in the heads of your target audience takes a considerable amount of intense, sustained effort. After you've been through the target audience mindset exercise a couple hundred times, you may have gotten better at it because of all the practice, but you may also have concluded that it's a futile effort. After all, even though you may often have succeeded in climbing into the heads of your audience, you've probably discovered at times that your boss and the account guy and the client have not done so and often cannot do so, like we talked about earlier. As a result, they fail to understand or appreciate the insight you've gained that inspired your ad concept. These others in the approval chain reject precisely because of their failure to do their job, the job at which you succeeded. After working on many, many assignments that ended this way, your motivation to make the effort to understand your audience can be seriously undermined or wiped out. And what was interesting to me is you, you talked about the again back to Benet and Carter some of the reasons that people uh, can't get in the head well of their customers well one of them is probably laziness let's not underestimate laziness yeah for sure that's that's probably the biggest but you yeah. they they uh this there's several names one of them is called the typical mind fallacy which is where you say other people are just like me. Um, and that just seems like such a blind spot. They just assume yeah. that other people are just like you. And then there's another one called the false consensus bias, which is everyone else thinks like me, which for me, that's actually true. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then the confirmation bias, which is, yes, I am right. Oh, it was just it was just fascinating. But I I've seen this uh, so much, and I got the impression from your that chapter that sometimes you were the only person that was trying to think like the the uh, yeah. ideal person to receive this message. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it is it's hard to do, and I I have failed at it uh, many many times. But but if you don't, I mean, what's the point of identifying a target audience and trying to understand that audience? If you're not then going to try to get into their heads, mm-hmm. you know, and, and basically that's the discipline of an actor. That's what actors do, right? Yeah. So, so that that's a that's a characteristic of of uh, so-called creatives and advertising, you know, writers and art directors, designers, and all that, is that is that they need to have the skill 
this acting skill, not something that I think is generally taught in advertising schools to, to have this acting skill. Maybe it is. I don't know. Maybe it's just not called that. But um, trying to understand how your target audience sees the world, sees their lives, how they see the product you're trying to sell or the competitive product that they are using now or whatever, trying to understand all that and then right, create an ad that addresses that you know, from the point of view, understanding the point of view of the target audience. It seems like such an obvious, simple thing that you would have to do right, when you're creating advertising, but it's not. And to your point, that laziness thing is really, really true, especially if you're working in one category for a long time. Mm. If you're you're a beer guy in advertising, you do a lot of beer commercials, but for different brands or whatever, you know, whether they can even distinguish this group of beer drinkers from ones over here who are you know have allegiance to a different brand do we really understand what's going on with them and then you know it turns out you're a you drink a third kind of beer is, is what you prefer right it's really hard to keep those separate and not let them kind of pollute each other yeah so, there have been so many books on the show that talk about how important this is of what i'm talking about get out of the office <laughs> Yes. And go yeah. talk to these people. Yes. Go, go get your vaccines <laughs> and yeah, then go right. go talk to these people. And it's 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 just amazing. As I look back through my, you know, when I was an ad career, everything that was helpful was by me just wandering around and asking people questions and, and going on a factory tour, go and talk to the employees, but most yeah. importantly, go sure. talk to the customers. And I couldn't agree with you more when you write, and this is really a great warning for everyone, the digital age exacerbates the divide between the people creating advertising and those consuming it. One reason for this is that marketing research and account people are relying more on online research that keeps them at a distance from the target audience they are trying to understand. Instead of holding focus groups, which is expensive and time-consuming, there's an increasing tendency to rely on online surveys or other forms of research at a distance. As a result, those charged with providing insights into the heads of a target audience aren't interacting firsthand with these people, which reduces the chance of gaining the depth of understanding needed to create an emotional connection with them. And then you, you went on to talk about these two uh, guys. Uh, it was Larry Butts and Mike Myers who did a, a, an ad campaign for Maybelline, right? So these were two older white guys, and this was a a campaign for a product called Shades of You, Cosmetics for Women of Color from Maybelline, okay? And it won a gold <laughs> Effie, which you and I know is a really big deal. Yeah, right. Those are based on advertising effectiveness, not on creativity. And they also won a Communications Excellence to Black Audiences Award from the Black Marketing Associations. And I'm going to quote here, two white guys from the Burbs. How did we do it? We got out of the ivory tower of our large Chicago agency and spoke to every woman of color we possibly could. Our goal was to understand their issues and desires for makeup to complement well over a hundred shades of skin color. Instead of finding the perfect model or spokesperson, we created gorgeous faces out of the actual makeup so women could put themselves in the ad, which worked beautifully. Yeah. Oh, it's just so important. I know. How is that not like the number one 
task with that you you know you are given the time and the resources to do that to to interact with your target audience to try to understand them it's it's for me the one valid use of focus groups it's really helpful you know don't show them ads and ask them what they how they like them you know that's uh-huh. not what a focus group should do a focus group is you bring up people who are seemingly in your target audience and you and you invite them to talk about their lives, their attitudes about these products and so forth. And you you pay attention to what they sound and feel like, and what what impassions them, and so forth. And and you'll you're likely to learn something about them. Otherwise, you really have no idea. It's just some words on a page. Every insight that I've ever gained into helping a client, it's. All- Looking back, it always seemed like it was accidental. Yeah. <laughs> I stumbled upon yeah, yeah, right. certain things. Yeah, right, or you, yeah, you lucked out something. Yeah, or, yeah. So the last thing I want to ask you about, and this is re- – I know we're going long, but <laughs> I love the book. It, obviously, it got me fired up, and it's my podcast, so uh, I appreciate <laughs> But I appreciate the extra time you're spending with us. This last one is this uh, – Businessoid myth, and I deal with this all the time. Oh, I've okay. read articles about it. You write, a 2013 survey of 3,000 B2B purchasers found that not only do emotions matter in B2B buying, they actually matter more than logic and reasoning, just as in consumer advertising. And yeah. then you go on to write, the notion that people in business environments are still people who can be affected by ads with some emotional impact doesn't seem all that hard to grasp. But Jim, Morris, what's the resistance? I I couldn't – I saw this. I knew where you were going with it. And I remember reading a study from Gallup a few years back where they they were explaining – it was a write-up on a study. They were saying B2B buying is much more emotional than consumer buying because – I recently had my roof repaired and everything went well, but if I got a bad roofing job, that's kind of on me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But if you make the wrong decision for your company, it – it could affect your company's financial wherewithal. It could affect the future of your company. Yeah. But even more important, it's going to tag you for perhaps the rest of the career as having made a really bad decision. It could affect your future earnings. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I couldn't agree more. But yet, what's 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 keeping people from understanding this more? And and I, I have a feeling one of them is probably laziness, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, 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 sure. But I think uh, I think. Um, I don't really have the whole answer to that, but certainly part of it is that for so long, the area of advertising called business to business advertising has been has been uh, segregated, kind of isolated. So there are agencies that do that, and then there are agencies that do consumer stuff, and and they hardly ever uh, mingle, and and so there there's this culture entrenched culture in business to business world that is has bought into this uh, way of thinking about their their target that's just different you know it's not it's not the same we don't they don't think about their their target audience in the same way as general agencies or consumer agencies are more likely to so i think part of it is that is just inertia or habit you know, in terms of, of viewing these things where it was it's, – it's like – I mean, so that's one thing. Another thing is uh, sales people, you know, are more likely to be involved in 
decisions about advertising in a business to business context and right. they are right so mm-hmm. and the, and they're all about features and benefits right about bullet pointed lists of of uh, good things about whatever their product is i mean that's that's the, what they work from right sell sheets and stuff like that uh, which don't take into account the target audience at, at all. It's just about us, about our product, you know, us, us, us. And so those are a couple of the uh, factors, I think, that have contributed to this uh, kind of uh, uh, entrenched uh, way of going about doing advertising. It's starting to change, I think, but very, very slowly. And, um, and just, it's just starting to change as the entire advertising culture is starting to really take seriously this notion that emotion is way more important than, than reason, or at least as important in a business context. You know, so. Yes. It's so true. And I, if nothing else, people forget that there are very emotional human beings <laughs> that are making these decisions, even yeah. though they might be part of a big buying uh, group. So, right, right. Very important. So, yeah. Jim, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? <sighs> Golly. <laughs> All right. I didn't say it was a fair question. Yeah, no, I know. I, I think it would be the uh, – there are several overarching themes, but um, what's maybe most important is this business of a, an invisible ad – doesn't exist. It's a com- it's a complete waste. So why would you why would you create an ad that's that's invisible? You know, you have to f- set your fear aside and go for something. You know, and a lot of this invisibility is a result of fear on the one hand mm-hmm. or hubris on the other hand. So I think that's that's a big one. You know, I absolutely mean, correlation and causation is a big one and. Uh, the complexity of of everything and the temptation towards simplification that's a big one too but ultimately the fi- the final the bottom line kind of is about uh the visibility or invisibility of the ad people have to notice your ad before they can be affected by it yes yes well what's one thing a listener could do today just one uh to put in action one of the ideas from your book or or one that we've talked about let's let's, <laughs> let's put these people to work so uh question everything I think would be the thing I would suggest is that, you know, so often an advertising assignment generally starts with a creative brief. And the creative brief is a summary of what the goal of the advertising is, who the target audience is, what the promise is for this product or service, and maybe some reasons to believe that it's true. Okay, so that so so okay, so the creatives they don't know anything about anything until one day they get called into a conference room. They're handed a creative brief, and maybe given a brief explanation of what the what whatever else is they need to know, basically. But but that's you know that that's kind of their opportunity. And I, I saw this happen with some senior uh, creative people when I was a junior, where I'm looking at the brief and nodding my head and going, okay, let's go off and think of ideas. Uh-huh. You know, and the first thing these senior guys did is, is they started picking the brief apart, you know, uh, bit by bit, completely shredding the entire thing because it was all uh, made up stuff yes. and uh, ma- assumptions that were just, there was no basis for. Yeah, and they were thinking, and, how do you know that? Yeah, right, exactly. And so, you know, we left that meeting with the uh, account services people having to go back to the drawing board and actually take seriously 
writing a brief. So that's that's the question, everything. You know, there's a lot of, I have a chapter on conventional stupidity in advertising, you know, which would be conventional wisdom if it were wise, but it's not. And that also needs to be questioned. Everything in that world needs to be questioned. Yes. You know, and, and, you know starting with, does it even make sense to do an ad? Because <laughs> a lot of times it's just out of habit or reflex, you know, it's crazy. So yeah. or they ha- or they have some budget left over at the end of the year. So let's do an ad. You know, that's that's not a reason to do an ad. No. So okay. Uh, so there's there's my answer. That's great question. Everything. <laughs> so uh, what? Looking back, what books have have most inspired? Yeah. Your work and career. You mentioned so many in this book. Books that have been most inspired my work and my career. I'm going to stick within the realm of basically advertising and marketing. Okay, you know there there probably might be a philosophy book or a science book that's affected me, but it would be such a indirect thing. And you were a philosophy major in college, right? Yes, I I was a mediocre philosophy major. I I I tried to get a master's and I couldn't. It was too hard. It just got too hard. Anyway, okay, so books. All right, so the first book I would uh, I would say uh, maybe affected me the most is the book of Gossage about uh, Howard Luck Gossage, who was a an advertising guy in, I think, the late 50s and 60s, uh-huh. kind of a um, maybe a precursor to Stan Freeberg or maybe a peer of his. I'm not sure, but he was just a just an absolutely – brilliant, way ahead of his time, uh, visionary regarding advertising. And so that I would that book was just amazing. And the introductions by Jeff Goodby mm-hmm. of Goodby Goodby Silverstein and all that. So that and that's cool too, but it's a really uh it's a good book. All right. Then um a book that I didn't see until maybe halfway through my career was uh Luke Sullivan's book, uh, Hey Whipple Squeeze this. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. which is a um, it's essentially a, a collection of very reality based, useful, pragmatic uh, things to do and not not to do uh, in your career. And it, it's it's aimed at copywriters. It applies also to art directors and designers. And certainly, if you were in research or account services or media or whatever, it would still be a really valuable book because it gives you such insight into um, the ways in which the creatives operate and don't and shouldn't operate. So that's a really good one. That's a classic, that book. Mm -hmm. And then finally, uh, there's a book called The Anatomy of Humbug by Paul Feldwick. And and he was was a columnist in, in AdMap, so that's how I found out about him. And he wrote a really interesting book that was kind of an overview of the history of advertising, breaking it down into um, kind of worldviews through the lens of advertising of many great people, starting with uh, uh, P.T. Barnum <laughs> and then on through, you know, uh, Rossa Reeves and you know all, this, all these great historical advertising figures who had their own points of view. You know, advertising is uh, salesmanship in print, right? That's mm-hmm. that's one kind of worldview. And then Bernbach had his way of looking at things. Bill Bernbach and uh, David Ogilvy had his way of looking at. They all have a kind of a different way of a different lens through which they see advertising, how it works, and all that. And and the point of the book, one of the points of the book, I think, is that he's saying 
none of these people is right or wrong. They're not, they're, it's not like somebody got it figured out finally. It's not like that. It's like all of them actually had a really well-constructed, smart way of viewing advertising in certain circumstances. And so the job of advertisers today is to figure out which way of thinking about advertising applies most effectively to which situation that you're in in terms of what you're, the advertising you're doing. It's a very interesting book. I've never really seen a book that, that did that before. It's very inclusive in that, in that regard, and it gives you a real sense of uh, how advertising has, uh, I wouldn't say evolved, <laughs> but how it's changed over the interesting. years. Interesting, so, yeah. yeah really and good. I, all the books you just mentioned are also on page 216 because you have a, a list of books. I, for, I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> you wrote some other books on or related to advertising that, in my estimation, are more useful than harmful include. <laughs> and yes. includes includes those and, uh, and several others. Well, yeah. well, let me ask, are there any recent uh, or, or upcoming books that uh, you recommend or you've heard about you're looking forward to reading? Well, absolutely. Um, I'm looking forward to reading my next book. Ah! <laughs> Would you like to know the working title of that book? Would that be Advertising 2? <laughs> no, no, that would be my next to the next book. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm hoping. <laughs> it's a theory. Anyway, I'm writing a book call, now called uh, Without Taglines, Life Itself Would Be Impossible. And it's an entire book just about taglines. Uh, it, I studied the, you know, the the literature, shall we say, and I found that every ten years or so, somebody writes a book about slogans or taglines. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, oh, so it's so your I, turn. I think it's my turn because I I think I have a very different view of how taglines work, not just in advertising but in branding kinds of things where there's no ad involved. And uh, so I'm well into that book, and it's going to be really interesting, and it's going to be probably impossible to sell it to a publisher. <laughs> well, you don't <laughs> have to. It, it's a niche. Well, no, I don't have to, but I want to. No, I mean, there, there are so many ways that you can, you can publish uh, a book and, uh, on your own without having to go. But I know hybrid true. publishers, there's lots of options. Yeah, no, you're right. You're and right I have to that. laugh because I know you're a tagline guy. You're, you're tagline Jim. I mean, come on. Yeah, that's but right. on page 107, you, in the section on the lack of likability, you then listed all of these taglines <laughs> – and I, it was delicious, okay? Because at the end of every tagline, it said, like, for life. <laughs> yes. That's right. But there were like 25 or 30 on yeah. here. Volvo, yeah. for life. Yes. <laughs> Victorinox, companion, for life. Yeah. So you can see the need for a book. Oh, I think that would be fascinating. Oh, you've yeah. got Panasonic. Ideas for life. For life. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. The Marketing Book Podcast, for life. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> just send me the bill for that. Yeah. But, uh, well, so, can I mention to to ask to actually seriously answer your question? I would like to mention three books, relatively recent, okay, that I yeah. would recommend. Uh, one is called uh, "How Brands Grow." Oh yes. What marketers don't know by Byron Sharp, and it's just really smart, current thinking about about uh, advertising and marketing and in. You know, he pulls back the curtain in a big way. Let me interject. 
yeah. that book that book has been mentioned in several of <coughs> uh, some other books that I've read. Mm-hmm. And listeners have had suggested that I I feature that book on the show. I reached out to uh, Byron Sharp with yeah. the help of Bob Hoffman, who knows him. He's another author who's been on the show. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't able to do it. He was he was a bit busy. But yeah. if any listener <laughs> could reach out through social media to Byron Sharp and encourage him to be on the Marketing Book Podcast, I would really appreciate it because I, I'm, I'm still trying to get him uh, on his schedule to get back that book on the, featured on the show. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, that would be really good. Okay, and then I have two other books. These are specifically targeted to copywriters, but I th- would think would be a very, in- a very interesting for uh, anybody. It's in in any aspect of marketing. Um, one is called the the Idea Writers: uh, Copywriting in a New Media and Marketing Era. It's by uh, Teresa Ayesi. I think that's how she pronounces her name. She used to be an Adweek columnist, and she's been many things since then. It's a re- it's it's a really contemporary view of how uh, creatives are, what they actually do, and it, if you read the book, it's a description of everything I'm not because I'm too old. So oh, it's wow. very very uh, really nicely done. And then another book that is out by a, a young guy, a junior. Writing Your Way Ahead in Advertising, uh, so Junior is the f- title, and Writing Your Way Ahead in Advertising is the subtitle that's by a, a fellow named Thomas uh, Kemeny, or Kemeny, I'm not sure the pronunciation, but it's it's kind of an, uh, to me, it's like a m- more modern version of, hey, Whipple, squeeze this, that Luke Sullivan book. It's like uh, somebody needed to do another one of those, and so he did. Well, that's great, and uh, we'll include links to Everything linkable, including uh, the books that you've mentioned and uh, your your website, taglinegym.com, and your LinkedIn profile. And also, there's one other thing you mentioned in the book that we didn't get a chance to talk about, but we didn't really need to, the art and copy documentary. Uh, you, you, I think it was in a uh, – at the very end, you talked about this 2009 documentary, and I saw it, and I loved it. And it's available on YouTube, so I'll include that uh, on your your episode's uh, website page. That's great. Yeah. So everybody can get to that. Now, for the listener, if you guys could do me one big favor, uh, and this isn't where I ask for a five-star review, although if you want to hook me up, that'd be fine. But please reach out to uh, Jim Morris and thank him for being uh, on the Marketing Book Podcast. Do it on LinkedIn or uh, on his website or, or whatever way you can reach him. Thank him for being a guest there. I, as I often say, there's over a million podcasts, and Jim Morris has decided to be on this one and spend a lot of time with us about this really great book. Um, it'll really make his day, and, and so many authors who've been on the Marketing Book Podcast are so delighted when they hear from uh, Marketing Book Podcast listeners. I just got an email this week from, from an author talking about how they've started a dialogue with a number of Marketing Book Podcast listeners. So please please do that for me, and please make Jim's day. And if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. Final quote. In Marketing Myths That Are Killing Business, Clancy and Schulman concur. All things considered, we would say that we know little about the effect of advertising on sales and profitability. More seriously than all these gaps in knowledge that riddle the process, however, is the fact that so many people in this business don't seem to know that they don't know this stuff. 
This is the more serious problem, because this ignorance, or perhaps denial, clears the way for us to start pretending and acting as if we know so much more than we actually do. It invites ad hubris, deceit, and self-delusion. We need to get real, get over ourselves, and get about the business of doing the best we can without acting as if we're doing better than that. The book is Badvertising, an expose of insipid, insufferable, ineffective, invisible advertising. (laughs) The author is Jim Morris. Jim, thank you so much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Doug. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, the new Ahrefs Webmaster Tools, which monitor your website's SEO health, backlinks, and organic rankings for free. It's a very advanced free SEO tool that will scan your site and prioritize precisely what you need to fix to improve your search results. And it's so easy to use, why even a podcast host can use it. Check it out at hrefs.com slash A-W-T. That's A-H-R-E-F-S dot com slash A-W-T. You can also find a link to it at this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com along with a video that shows you how it works. And remember the words of the late, great Jim Rohn who said, formal education will make you a living, self-education will make you a fortune.